So let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you that you have paved the way for us to gather this morning. For whatever place we come from, whether it was chaos at home or whether it was very quiet, whether it was from a night of tossing and turning and worrying or a night of restful sleep, whether it was with our heart pounding fast because of what lies ahead in the day, perhaps a medical diagnosis to be delivered, news from our family, events that we cannot even begin to imagine. Let us not be afraid, O oh God, to go into this day Help us to be brave. Help us to be open to the way that your spirit meets us in whatever comes. But God, help us in this moment to be here, in this place, not there where we're going next and not there where we've been, but here in this moment together to hear your word, to listen to what you're trying to say in your word, to listen to the voice that speaks deep inside of each of us, and to listen to each other. These things we pray in your name. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to give you, um, uh, there's a couple of instructions that are going to come with this, but I'll give those in just a moment. But the scripture that we're looking at today is from Genesis 27, 46 through 28, 9. And I wonder if, if I could just see, how many of you actually read this ahead of time? Anybody? Wow. Good job. And for the rest of you, fine. It's fine. We'll catch up. We'll, we'll catch up. There is something about hearing it for the first time. And uh, I love to see movies second and third times, though, because I always catch stuff in it. And I've been known to read books over and over again, too, because I'm like, I don't remember this in this book. And uh, so there's all kinds of things to catch when you reread something. So I'm going to start this different than starting at 2746, because there's something I want you to notice. And what I want you to notice is that this is a pickup from a very strange little addition to chapter 26, which is what we studied when I was here last time. And what we studied when I was here last time was all about digging wells and striking water, right? So, and right at the end of that chapter was this little blurb. And so I want to start there because that little blurb was added to that chapter. And here we come to this chapter, but I don't, I'm not sure that you would get this chapter if you didn't know that little blurb. So I'm going to start with 2634, and that is where I left off with you last time. And then I'm going to pick up with our lesson today. So this is how it goes. 2634 says, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basimoth, daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now going over to verse 46 in chapter 27. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the Hittite woman. 
women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women such as these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be? How Jewish can you get? (laughs) Honestly, what good is my life if he marries one of these women? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him. You shall not marry one of the Canaanite women. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So in other words, go marry a cousin. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and numerous, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give to you the blessing of Abraham, to you and to your offspring with you, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, land that God gave to Abraham. A little bit of a strange speech from a father to a son, and we'll explain that in just a little bit. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. So, now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And as he blessed him, he charged him, you shall not marry one of the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. Now, who did Esau already marry? He, he's already married a couple of times to two Hittite women that have made their parents' life miserable. So then we have this. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father Isaac, Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, daughter of Abraham's son Ishmael, another cousin, and sister of Neboeth to be his wife in addition to the wives that he had. All right. So... Isn't this a fun scripture that we're going to be studying today? What I would like for you to do, though, is I'm going to do a little exercise with you. What I want you to do is imagine that you take this scripture, these verses that we just read, and you put a parenthesis around them. Okay? Put a parenthesis around them. Now, what I'm going to do in this little exercise, I'm going to read chapter from chapter just you don't have to follow just listen to me you can follow if you want but I'm going to be moving at the speed of light so I'm going to read from chapter 27 verses 43 through 45 and then I'm going to jump to 2810 in other words I'm going to skip that whole all those verses and tell me what you tell me what you notice so 27 43 through 45 is this Now, therefore, my son, this is uh, Isaac speaking, obey my voice, flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger against you turns away, and and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Now we go to 2810. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. What do you notice about skipping those verses? Yeah, it, well, when you skip those verses, it does nothing to the story. The story continues. 
he sends, Isaac sends his son away. And then in, the next thing we do is we come to, and he went to up to Beersheba. So you, that is the framework that I want you to understand these particular verses are set. These verses are not to, meant to be really a part of the story. These verses are a teaching. It's a teaching moment, an opportunity. And the priestly tradition, the priestly writers took that opportunity to set within it a teaching. Now, that's what we're going to explore today. So the framework in which to understand these verses that have been set within this story is, um, is really important. It's really important to understand the context. What surrounds, why on earth would they insert these, uh, these verses into this story? And, and, and it's for three reasons. One is something called syncretism. The second is authorship. And the third is the whole understanding of marriage of the times. So the first two are really the most important pieces of that, and that's what we're going to get into. So um, how many of you ever saw the movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Yeah, almost everybody. And, and, and you realize what that, that was like 1965 or 66 or 62, somewhere in the 60s. And that was a story about an interracial couple and the, the, um, the angst of all of that, and also for, in many states, for being illegal for them to be together. So that was about intermarriage and the uh, things that were fraught coming with interracial marriage. And then later on, there, there was a movie recently about Mildred and Richard Loving called Loving. How many of you ever saw that? It's interesting because it's a true life story about Richard and Mildred Loving, who in 1965 were an interracial couple. She's black, he's uh, white. And they were an interracial couple that challenged the ban on interracial marriage in 1965 in Virginia and were the first ones to successfully win. And so that ban had to go away. So, so we have these two uh, movies, and they, they're interesting to us, and we recognize the issues that are behind these movies, and, and they seem very familiar to us. Now, from a modern Western mind, this passage might bring to mind this type of systemic racism or exclusivity that in the United States we've been working on trying to bring reconciliation and healing and normal, normalization, but the issues and the intent of this scripture are extremely different than our understanding of, of racial bias and prejudice. The intention has nothing to do with the other people. The intention has everything to do with the, the Israel nation themselves. So what I'm going to ask you to do today is I'm going to ask if you can to be mindful and to let go of the impression that Rebecca just didn't like Hittites. She just didn't like them because they were, they were a, a pain in her neck. Let go of that, that presupposition. 
And let go, uh, if you think that Isaac is just prejudiced or bigoted against the um, Canaanite people, and these two people are just exclusive and they're, racial, they're racially uh, motivated, if you let go of that no notion and let go of the notion that has anything to do with a kind of a superior race mentality, which we saw rise up 1939 to 1945 in Nazi Germany, that there was a superior pure race for the reasons of oppression. If you can let go of all that notions and keep your mind wide open, we're going to try to walk back into this, this time and this space and see what is it if they weren't being bigoted, if they weren't being prejudiced, if they weren't trying to stop this interracial marriage because it's just against God's law? What were they trying to do? What was going on here? And it's helpful to understand the framework that surrounds the scripture passage of the day, this parentheses, this teaching moment that's been inserted here. So to that end, I would like for you to consider this question all along the way as we talk today. Consider this question. What's at stake? What is at stake for the Jewish people? And why do they feel the need to reiterate this, this uh, purity? Why is it so critical to the editors of this book to keep the Jewish line pure? And I'm wondering just right off the bat if you have just any idea. And we have a couple of people with microphones. So if you ha do you have an idea, why was it so important? And if you could just raise your hand, I'd love to hear from you before we launch into this. Anybody? What was the stake here? I think intermarriage. Um um, dilutes the, the the Israelites. It dilutes their maybe their allegiance to God because they'd be exposed to other faiths, um, other gods. Yeah. So it wasn't about deleting the race. It was about deleting the faith. Dilution. Yeah. 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 Yes. yeah diminishing. diminishing. Yeah. Okay. And there was somebody over here as well. Well, God has promised to make them a people that are countless and innumerable and the way they're going to build that up is by recreating themselves and building up the Jewish nation. Good, good. Both of you. I think both of you are right on. All right. Well, let's look at syncretism. And I gave you a handout about that. It's on, I think it's attached in the, uh, at the very last page. And I'm not going to... Uh, I could let you just read this and we could move on, but I want to talk about it just a little bit. And so I want you to know that uh, at the very top, you know, I just added a little picture in this little story. What uh, Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia, there is an a, uh, ancient Christian cemetery and its gravestones are marked with Nestorian crosses. Nestorian was a um, religious movement by a Nestor that believed that Jesus was two people because there there couldn't be one person who was divine and one person who was human, so there were two. So they believed in Jesus, but they believed in Jesus in a very different way. So uh, a cross overlaid on a lotus blossom. Now, do you know of any religion in which the lotus blossom is very significant? Buddhism, that's exactly right. In Buddhism, the lotus blossom has a great deal of meaning, and it's a sacred imagery, like our cross 
or like something else of, of that nature. So it sits on a lotus blossom, and the epitaph reads, This is the grave of Jeremiah the believer, and the gravestone gives the year of Jeremiah's death, but then it says the year of the sheep, referencing the 12 animal cycle of the Chinese zodiac. And this is not, I mean, this is just one example of many times you will see this, this merging of different religions and different belief systems into one, into a completely different belief system. Or it's just a, you know, just a, a merging, it's a kind of a mess, kind of a muddy mess. So syncretism is the blending of two or more religious belief systems into a brand new system. So it's not just like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's like blending them and then coming up with something totally new. For example, um, uh, one of the examples I give you, or I'm not sure if you've got this example yet, but one of the examples is that uh, when the African slaves were brought to the islands, the, uh, they were forced to practice Catholicism. But they carried with them all the traditions from Africa of the, the, the gods, the deities, the evil, the idea of evil and everything. So they took a little bit of Catholicism and a little bit of their beliefs and it merged into voodoo and Santeria. And those religions are what came out of that. Now, every religion has a little bit of this syncretism. Um, you know, we, we have merged with, uh, um, you know, we've merged not different belief systems. In a way, though, we have merged it, uh, with Judaism, which, and it came out to be a completely new religion, which is Christianity. Although we understand that Christianity is a continuation of the, the Jewish promise, but yet it's completely different than Judaism. But it's not syncretic because it's not a different, um, it, it isn't a blending and you come out with something totally different than the one God and the, and the Messiah. So anyway, so and then there was a, a couple of other examples. For example, um, how many of you remember the Moonies from the 70s? Remember all those thousands of brides? I wonder how many of them are married today, I wonder. But um, thousands of brides and Sun, uh, sun Mung Yu, Moon what he did was he took Taoism, Buddhism, Korean tribal religions, and even some Christianity to form the Unification Church. And this was just absolutely appalling to the church because they used the word church. But this was a blending of all of those and, and put it together, and he came out with his own teaching. And, and Mormonism is thought to be syncretic also. Because Mormonism takes Methodism, some frontier uh, understanding, Swedenborg, which was a um, belief system that was created by a man named Swedenborg, and it was a um, a very very uh, far out offshoot of some Christian notions, but without the, the, the center of, of Christianity. It was just more the notions from. So those are adopted into it with a little bit of Masonic influence as well. And uh, on Nauvoo, and Nauvoo is a place where the Mormons first came before they got to um, 
before they got to Utah and before they got to other places. They were first there, planted some, and then moved on. So anyway, Mormonism is thought to be that where it takes you know, different ones and it emerged into a completely different religion. It's really interesting. In my mind, it's almost like you go, you, you get your basket, your faith basket, and you go to the grocery store and you walk down the aisle and you go, I like that, that looks good. And no, that's not, uh, uh, that, that doesn't, that's broccoli, that doesn't appeal to me. So I'll take this and I'll take that and, and then you come up with, you know, what you like, what doesn't challenge you, what doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, what doesn't push you, you just come up with something that you like and it's very comfortable and it, and it works for you. Now that's not true of all of these syncretic religions. Some are very hard and some are based on suffering or whatever, but I still think it's a choice of walking down that, um, walking down in the supermarket. And I will go so far as to say, as I think that we kind of practice that in the Christian church, when we, <laughs> with uh, worship, I've seen this happen, where we walk in and we say, I like that song, and I don't like that song. And I like, I like that version read in the Bible. And I don't, everybody knows it's only King James Version that you can read. But it's, but what about this version? And, you know, and so on. We get, we get really picky too. But syncretism is, um, it, the, there are elements to their belief that um, they believe not only dilutes their faith, but is absolutely, absolutely steals their faith. It robs their, their belief system of being, uh, uh, being the truth, being the way, and being the life. So what we have working on us here is in a response to syncretism. This, these verses is a response to syncretism. Now, why do we need that at this point in the story? The, that, and that comes to the authorship of, this, of these verses in this story. Now, most scholars, we all know that, the, that Genesis primarily and Exodus and, and the first five books of the Torah have four sources of writings that they come from from different communities. You've heard you've heard this. Jack has talked about this before, I'm sure. J P D E. It, yes? No? Well, the these stand for the different communities that were the editors that at some point in history took all of because nothing was written down. Nothing was written down for thousands of years. But it was it was told in memory, in oral history, and then it became a practice in worship, and then it became a policy in worship. So after a certain time along the way, certain communities took it upon themselves and they gathered all the information, all the pieces, all the stories, all of the tellings and the practices and the policies, and they began to create a narrative that would help readers for generations and generations and generations to understand the relationship that God had with people. And, and uh, the reason is just like J. J is like um, for uh, the uh, Yahwehist, and it's because it's from the German Yahweh, 
J. And, and so how do they tell who wrote which pieces? Because there will be a verse, and half of the verse will be a Yahwist wrote it, and another half of the verse will be a Deuteronomist wrote it. How do they know? Because each of those communities of, of, of editors and writers, each of them have a distinct personality. And there are certain things about them that you know for sure that, oh, that's them. For example, the, um, the priestly tribe. Everything that the priestly tribe, everything that the priestly community writes about is about ritual and worship and genealogies and, and census and all of that. So what do you, book do you think that they are attributed to writing? Yes, numbers. <laughs> and, and the Deuteronomists who are all about the law and keeping the law and the ritual and whatever. Who do you think, what book did they write or are mostly attributed to? Leviticus, which is all about the... Now, the Yahwist is very, very colorful in their community. They're the ones that come up with the personality and with the with the, the, the deep stories and the primeval literature, like Adam and Eve and all of this, they're the ones and the earlier writers. So these segments didn't, separate, didn't circulate on separate stories. Unless you, sh you think that this is somehow... Um, l let me just re reiterate that when we talk about oral history, we're not talking about the way we remember things. You guys, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. But you know what? When I was in Kenya and when I was in Malawi, both countries, and I would attend worship services. I had the you know, great pleasure of preaching in, in these different churches. In both countries and with both uh, churches, they were having a contest for their children. And the contest was they had memorized chapters out of the Bible, and they would get up, and I mean, these services were two and three hours long, because these children would get up, and they would recite, like, the first five chapters of Romans. That's amazing. And they were, like, seven years old. And the first, the first ten chapters of Genesis... And then, and I can remember one little girl got through the first six chapters and she stumbled over a word and she started crying. And I'm like, I would have been crying the, after I said in the beginning. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of oral history we're talking about. People who had memorized the stories from their parents and grandparents and grandparents and grandparents around the fire together. And these had become, these had become the stories of our faith. So then the editors, the ones who are trying to be true to what has been handed down to them and become practice in the worshiping communities, these are the ones that are looking back into history, pulling them together, and once in a while, they're doing a teachable moment. Once in a while. And what is that for? Even, uh, um, so... Let me skip that part because I don't think that's interesting. <laughs> so these verses, these particular verses, are, are always attributed to the priestly tradition. Now, do you remember what I said about the priestly tradition? They're the, uh, the priestly source 
is perhaps the most widely recognized source underlying the Torah. And, and these texts are written down at least a thousand years after they took place. Then they're assembled in oral tradition. So it's both stylistically and theologically distinct from other material in Torah. You won't find the way the priestly writer writes, you won't find it in other places. So, and it stresses the rules and rituals of worship and the crucial role of priests. And, it, it, and, and it's very, very concerned with the purity of keeping in line in worship and, and in our faith with the promises that God had made and being able to, to walk into those promises. Very concerned with it. And they are writing in around five, around 530, um, around 539 BC. Do you know what else was happening at 539 BC? The Babylon, the Babylonians were came in, conquered the the Jewish life, took over the governments toppled took their leaders, took all of the Jewish people and scattered them across the land. They didn't have synagogues, they didn't have temples, they didn't have each other. They were, they were scattered and dispersed. It was called the diaspora. It was one of four exiles, but it was massive. They lost their identity. They lost their land. They lost their place of being and they're scattered everywhere. So, this is a teachable moment in this as the priestly writers look back and see the progress of the history. They look back and they see this is a teachable moment. They, uh, they are dated to the exile when the traditionalists faced a particular crisis. And the crisis was because they were dispersed. The fear was that this nation following Yahweh would be tempted by various religions and cultural alternatives. Do you think that's possible where you move into a neighborhood and your neighbor says, hey, would you like to go to church with me? Well, that's nice. So you go to church with them. And maybe it's not the church that you grew up in, but there's really nice people there and they support family. And, and, you know, so would it not be, can we not have sympathy for these people who are embedded into these other places that where they had no place to worship, where they began to worship and slip and slide into other places? They had no priest telling them, you have to keep, we have to keep going, guys. God is good. God is faithful. God's going to call us back together. But what they had was they had this uh, opportunity to say once again, you guys, God is faithful. And God has called us with a mission and a promise. And we need to stay true to that mission and that promise. So the theological agenda of these verses and the agenda of exile is the identity and the distinctiveness of the Israelite community in the face of assimilation. How are we going to stay Jews when we are not together? 
How is that going to be possible? And the acute threat of assimilation became symbolized by marriage. Now, one of the traditions in the um, uh, in that ancient world is that the children will be brought up by the mother's religion. That was one of the traditions. And it, I think it remains a tradition today. If there's somebody who's Jewish or has knowledge of this, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that it's still true today that if you, if you marry outside of your faith, you, uh, if, a, if it's a woman and she's a Jew, your children will still be brought up Jewish. That's, that's, the, way, that's the way of the, of the relational system that they have. And so this became a really important situation. And can you see why? Why would this be important? It's exactly what she said before. God had promised them, follow me, be my people. I will be your God. There will be many generations to come. You will have land. You will have progeny. Now, all of a sudden, they're scattered everywhere. They have no land. Everything is a mess. And these faithful um, uh, historians and editors are saying, wait, wait. God is faithful. God will reunite us. Now, if you think that's harsh about... um, Uh, inserting this teaching, when they finally do get back together, when they're brought back from every corner of the world and begin to rebuild, one of the prophets, Nehemiah says, all of you people who married women outside the faith, all of you send your wives and your children home to their faith. That's what happens in Nehemiah. I mean, I can't even imagine. Can you? You've been married for 30 years. You have four kids. And all of a sudden, your husband says, hey, got some news for you. We, I got to send you home because we, we're going to rebuild our relationship with God, with each other, with, the, you know. And I mean, there would be a lot of questions that came from that. So... <laughs> Yeah, a lot of questions. And probably not everybody did what did that, I assume. I imagine that that was a real test. That was a real parting of the ways for some people. And, um, and those people went on probably to have wonderful lives, and, but, they, but they lost their faith. The same way that when in Exodus, oh, I hope you guys are going to study Exodus. It's so exciting. So I I really hope you're going to study it. Oh, man. But in Exodus, all along the way, they kept losing people because when they stopped, I mean, for us, they they stopped and it was a commercial break. For them, they stopped and they planted themselves there for years because they had to grow food. They had to get, you know, they had to do things. So all along the way, they kept losing families who were like, I like it here. Weather's nice. Good neighbors. It's proven to be, this is the promised land. This is where I'm going to stay. And then we know that there was, the journey was ahead because it was about the development of people, not just about getting to a place. It was about the development and the evolution of a people to be ready 
to be the framework for Jesus to enter the scene to change the entire world, not just their little slice of land. So the assimilation question was symbolized by this idea of marriage. And it's helpful to remember that marriage is a very different uh, proposition in those times. I, I don't think that's any news to you. Um, they uh, Many, many women, young girls, were promised from birth to somebody. And are promised later on when they were older, like 10 or 12, when they became childbearing for sure. They were already promised to somebody. So, that, you know, marriage was a very different proposition. And marriage was all about land. And it was all about alliances. Who, you know, who can we ally with that can keep us safe and can also promote our property? That was what marriage was all about in, that, in those times. I'm not saying that people didn't fall in love. I hope there was a lot of love going on. But... That was what it was founded on. So, um, so then we have so we have these we have these um, three things. We have syncretism was going on. We have authorship being the priestly who are looking back a thousand years, taking an opportunity to speak about syncretism, so that they would be a word of encouragement to those who in the diaspora. And we have the idea of marriage. So then we've already seen that these verses are somewhat of an intrusion into the primary narrative. They're unrelated to what happened before and what happened and what follows. At the same time, though, as I said before, at the very beginning, they do speak to that very last little blurb in 26, and which is also inappropriate in its context. So what purpose do they serve? We've already talked a little bit about that, but I want to go back, I want to circle back and reiterate that, that these verses are not seen as story. These verses are seen as teaching. It's the teachable moment within the story. So uh, this short priestly narrative marks Jacob's move from Canaan to Haran. And it's, re and it's related to the previous story of his blessings in two ways, which is very interesting. For one thing, it comes as an alternative blessing of Jacob in priestly language. So that's what this odd, um, that's what this odd scripture is in three and four, where all of a sudden we have this father saying something like, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and numerous, that you may become a company of peoples, may give to you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, land that God gave to Abraham. So this is the priestly blessing. This is the way the priestly writers come back in with the Abrahamic blessing that we've already heard about 20,000 times in the past few chapters in different ways with different writers. So what are they reiterating here? Lineage and land. Lineage and land, they're reiterating. They're going to make you a nation of peoples with land. So come back. So, and it also provides, if you, I, I don't know if you noticed, but it provides an alternative to the reason why Jacob left. 
Did you notice that? Uh, it, what we read before was, why did Jacob leave? Why did he, he leave in the middle of the night? Yeah, he was in trouble with his brother, right? So, but in this, in these verses, what, what does it say why, why Jacob left? Did you notice that? Uh-huh. Well, his, yeah, his, they said, go get a wife. It wasn't, it wasn't get out in the middle of the night, which was the other, the, the, which was what you've already read. It was like, leave before, you know, before Esau finds out what, what's happened and, you know, Esau is ready to kill you and he leaves in the middle of the night with flocks and whatever. No, this is like, you know, you need to go get a wife and go to our cousin, Laban, and go get a wife there. It's much more civilized. It's much more, uh, what they do is they picture a very harmonious family. When the other chapters, it's so out of sync with what the other chapters have already presented to us, that the tension, we built up to this tension between the brothers, and then all of a sudden we read, Esau goes, oh, my brother got a, good, uh, a wife, and my parents like it, so I'm going to go get that same kind of wife. All of a sudden we get this picture. So the priestly are not about story. They're about teaching. So they don't want the story to get in the way of the teaching. So we have this, um, so the account, uh, um, the movement of the passage, there's three segments that move the passage. And they don't flow easily from one to another. There's not a, a coherence, a sustained narrative. And that's why it feels so, uh, so jerky and shocky. All of a sudden, you know, we have go get a, a, a go get a wife from our cousin Laban, and you shall be blessed beyond measure. And then and, and then it comes back, and Esau says, "Well, I want a wife like that." And so it's this kind of a, a narrative that isn't uh, linked together very well. And the account begins with Rebecca's complaint, and as an introduction to teaching, it's pretty clear that to a passionate, faithful member of the family, assimilation through mixed marriage is a horrendous prospect. Absolutely horrendous. And the, but the main portion of the text is 28, 1 through 5. And 28, 1 through 5, it suggests a family in harmony, quite unlike the main tradition of a family that is a mess, where the father has been fooled, and the brother has been deceitful, and the other brother has been callous and careless with his, I mean, and all of that is gone in this moment, just in these five verses. So the unit is built around a warning about mixed marriage, which will jeopardize the faith of Israel and the promise of land. And the issue of assimilation to them is perceived as life and death. If they are assimilated around, what happens to the Jewish identity? Can you imagine, this is what I'm, I was thinking, can you imagine, not to get political, but can you imagine if Russia wins, you, you know, beats Ukraine, and then Russia says, takes all the Ukrainian people and says, and scatters them around the world and says, now you go be Ukrainian somewhere else. That's what happened to the Jews. And so this, uh, that's a, 
a very outlandish <laughs> analogy, but I'm just thinking of how wild and crazy it is that they were exiled away from land. The very thing that back, do you remember back with Abraham and Sarah when Abraham was trying to uh, bury Sarah and they were trying to give him a piece of land and what did he refuse? He refused to be given that land. What did he insist on doing? Buying that land because God promised him land and when they saw that opportunity, they said, this is part of God's promise and I'm going to do it right. So, so we have an active part in fulfilling God's promises. We don't have a passive part. We have an active part in it. So the, that assimilation becomes a, a matter of life and death. And then verse 6 through 9 is the central teaching. And it's repeated. 6 through 9 is repeated again. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padam Aran to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he charged him, you shall not marry one of the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padam Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father Isaac, Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, daughter of Abraham's son, Ishmael, and sister of Naboth, to his be his wife in addition to the wives he had. So now we know that the tribe of Israel is going forward. Right? It's been uh, that in this particular setting, the tribe is intact and the, the, the people are being obedient to God and they are marrying within, the, within, within themselves. So it's a really interesting, um, it's, a, it's a very interesting experience of a teachable moment within a story that doesn't make the story any less true. If, and you base the truth on what is, it, what is God trying to say to us? What do you think God is trying to say through these scriptures in this particular in this particular setting that has to do with us? Anything? Is it relevant to us at all? Don't be unequally yoked. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Do you, what do you mean by that, for some who don't know that language? Oh, thanks. Um, marry someone who's also a believer mm. so that you can pass your Christian beliefs onto your children without having to struggle with that within your marriage. Okay. So it can be it can be advice. And Paul gives that advice later as well. Advice for relationships. What else? How else is it? Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that do you think that you're assimilated into the culture that is around you? Do you think that you, you stand out of that culture as a Christian, as a Christian? And I'm not sure that you have to answer that, but I would like to pose that question to you. That question of, we can become just as much as anyone else. We can slip and slide right into a culture and make every excuse in the world why we are no, we no longer stand apart 
It's uh, maybe, I mean, it can be as simple as, I don't want to make a scene. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to hurt their feelings. Who am I to judge? You know, all of those, all of those, all of those things that we say, and I'm not saying, please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we're militant. I'm simply saying we slip and we slide. Mm-hmm. So when I became Christian, I was um, like 18 years old, and I was born from a, um, a, like a Lebanese father and a Mexican mom in, in a culture that is bicultural. Mm-hmm. And I was already bicultural, like trying to fit in both ways. And then I, I, I married and I was going to move here to the United States. And I, told, I asked my pastor, so what am I supposed to be now? And he told me that my, my Bible was my guidance, was my nation. And that whatever I was, I have to submit to my Bible and that's going to make me part of God's nation no matter what I was. And I have kept that. So I am foreigner no matter what because I belong to God's nation. Mm -hmm. So that's what I learned. Thank you. Thank you for that experience. It's beautiful. There's an overlap. I think, I think we live in the world, we can't deny that, but I think that um, we are separate, and I think one of the ways we can stay separate is by what this woman said, is about learning the Bible, learning what we believe, what our truths are, and although we can respect other faiths and other religions, um, um, that doesn't mean that we have to assimilate that to ourselves, but I think education, knowing what God teaches us is what's so important to, to maintain. Um, our faith, pure, if you want to use the word pure, is probably not great, but. Yeah. And I'm not sure that the real threat for us is other belief systems. I think the real threat for us is culture. And that's, that's the threat for us to be mindful of, to be thoughtful about. Do we have a culture of bullying? Do we have a culture of of uh, cancellation? Do we, have a, do we have a culture of elitism? Do we have a culture? What do you surround yourself with? What is it, what is it that you uh, experience in your own life? Jan, um, I'd like to thank you very, very much for your in-depth explanation for how the Bible was written, the various parts how it was put together, because I know for myself, as I read along, it'll be great. And then all of a sudden, I'll get to a few verses that now I know were written by someone else. Mm-hmm. And different chapters uh, that talk about, that have discrepancies. It, um, it explains a lot and has helped me a lot. So thank you very much. Um, I was just thinking when you talked about um, the culture that I just read or heard a statistic that in the 1950s, 80 plus or 90% of Americans identified as Christians. And that number is going down dramatically. And I've just been pondering why is it break up of families or what what it is. But then I had the thought that could it be that 
when I was growing up in the 40s and 50s, everyone went to church on Sunday because that's what everyone did. I'm not sure that they did it for the same, uh, with the same uh, commitment or understanding that as the numbers get lower, that people who are, who are keeping the faith have a deeper faith, not just everyone else is doing it, so I'm going to do it too. Right. Um, and while that really saddens me to see the numbers go down, you know, I, I, I'm really torn. Is it, um, are we doing a, a better job with those who truly do keep the faith? Well, I, I, I agree with you. I think that a lot of it is, in the 50s, you identified as Christian. That's just that, you know. But being identifying as Christian and being a Christian are different. And so, I mean, yes, I think there are probably fewer more. Part of that is because of spiritual malpractice by churches sometimes. And, um, and spiritual mal malpractice by many different faiths that have, you know, and, and then we have a generation that says, what is the church and what's it all about? And we have an opportunity to, to come up out of the ashes like a phoenix, you know, as God wants us to. So I, you know, I, I think that I, I agree with you. I, I'm not sure that those statistics have anything to do with the amount of people practicing faith. You know, it's, hmm? I've got a question. Um, not a question so much as I really appreciate the Jewish religion for the way that they stay together. And over the last 2,000 years, really without a country, they're, they're, um, they don't allow anybody to assimilate them. They do. I mean, I'm sure people marry, you know, get married outside the Jewish religion for sure, but they've really tried to hang on to that. Whether or not that's right or wrong to keep them you know, their culture pure um, is just very interesting to me after what we've talked about today, too. You know, you see it in other um, religions, too. I know that um, Islam, there's another example, is they try not to let anything assimilate who they are. They keep it to themselves. They keep them, try and keep their women not marrying outside the religion. And... Um, it's a very interesting question. Where does this put us today in our world as far as um, our, our culture, our religion, and our God and how we relate to God? Yeah. Anyway. My turn. Um, so yesterday I was listening on the radio and there was a, lady, a caller that called in because she had raised her, her family was Christian and she'd raised all of her children. They went to church, they all, you know. And now her firstborn had gone off to college, her daughter. And her daughter called home and said, you know, I was at um, some event. She was sitting there and she was trying to make conversation with one of the other students. And so uh, I guess the student asked, oh, you know, what, if, what groups are you with? And she said, well, I'm with this, and she named the Christian group. At the church, at the school, and literally the girl just turned away from her. She just turned the other way, and I thought, "Wow, you know, when you can't even have a, there's no even no discussion, no 
question about it, no, um, you know, and so I think what brought that to mind is, is what our young people are facing. Um, it's a very difficult situation for them because, mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, she either has to send her daughter to a Christian college um, or, I don't know, you know, it's, it's difficult, difficult world. I, I don't want to get too political, but uh, this addresses the comment you made about spiritual malpractice. And in recent years, there have been a number of Christian leaders or, or people that we associate with, with as Christians who have made some really um, bad choices or comments about other people. And so I, I hear some of these comments by supposed Christians that I think, if that's Christianity, I don't want any part of it because that's not what Jesus taught. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that might be part of the problem why some young people are turning away because there's this bad example of Christians, supposed Christians in front of them. That's my take on it anyway. I think it's probably time for your groups. Is that right? Or, or your pastime? I'm sorry. Um, but so I'm going to uh, uh, send you off with a prayer. God, I thank you so much for the time that you gave to us to be together, for the time that we are uh, present to your scripture and your word, the stories of our forebearers, and the stories of those who have gone before us and go after us. We pray that we will uh, walk not in their footsteps, but beside them as they walk with us. Help us to listen and, and converse in ways that are loving and worthy of your word. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you all so much.